Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel. And welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode, the myths of lift and shift to the cloud with special guest John Evans, Chief Technology Advisor at WWP. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for, for, for having me. It's my pleasure. Hey, you come highly regarded from um, someone that left WWT and came to Intel, and that's Hannah. Oh. Um, I know you know who Hannah is, um, and we're glad we have her. Sorry we, we stole her from you, but uh, we're happy to have Hannah on our team. So a shout out to Hannah on that one. Absolutely. She definitely deserves it. I'm still a little bitter. I'm totally kidding, but no, but I, <laughs> Hannah is, is, is awesome. I totally con con concur there. Great. So, John, tell us a little bit about your background and your history, how you got involved in uh, technology and, and all that. Uh, okay. So, um, been involved in technology for about 20 years now. Um, started actually during college um, in, a, in a help desk. So, I think that's not an uncommon start for a lot of technologists starting off in help desk. But yeah, started off doing tier one support in a uh, major defense contractors helped us, their internal help helped us. And then um, uh, just started moving on from, from, from there, move that into um, a knock as a service type of position. Um, uh, started getting more into the cybersecurity side, the enterprise architecture side, uh, worked for um, DISA uh, for a few years as a contractor, um, helping to architect the DOD, the DISA cloud. I was one of the lead architects for that. And then uh, eventually came to the state of Maryland, where I was brought in to lead the cloud migration and digital transformation efforts for the state. Um, they became aware of the work I had done on the DISA cloud, so they brought me in to help out with their cloud. And uh, after a few years of doing that, I transitioned to the state CISO position. Um, so got to see uh, at, a, at a high level, got to do the operations side as well as the security and governance side. And then about three years ago, I left um, government service and came over to WWT and it's been awesome here since. So are you still doing a lot in the public sector with WWT? I mean, cause your whole career has been in the public sector. Yeah, no, yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, uh, work pri primarily in state, local and education, um, help out a little bit in some other as a public sector. Uh, but I've really kind of focused more on the state, local and education over the last year or so. Um, like I said, still help out in some other areas, things like, uh, you know, um, um, zero trust roadmaps, uh, coming up with the uh, uh, WWT sort of way of doing things in cyber, cyber consulting, some of those types of, of uh, initiatives that are uh, kind of crossing the different verticals within public sector. I still help out with, with, with those as, as well. You know what, we're going to have to, I can already tell, you have to come back on the show and talk about security um, since you were a CISO, we're going to have to do that, but not today, okay. <laughs> today, <laughs> today we're doing, um, lift and shift, the myth of lift and shift. You've done several cloud migrations. It sounds like I've, I've been, um, very involved in two very large ones. So if you think of the department oh, of defense, well, that's, cloud, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a huge one. <laughs> and then, um, state of Maryland is, uh, I just learned this actually about a couple months ago, um, talking to one of the major cloud service pro pro providers that the program I led at Maryland 
is still the largest cloud migration ever to be done across state local education. So, um, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so uh, two 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 pretty big ones. All right, so um, a lot of people we we all want to hear, we all want to hear how that went, right? And we and we named the the episode today the the myths of lift and shift. I've I've seen this myself. I've helped um, some organizations go through this migration. And uh, the way that cloud is sold initially was just move your workloads, just move everything, right? And so what what have you found? Well, I mean, let's start off at right at the beginning with that first, what's the first myth? Uh, um, so I think that there's kind of four major lifts, I guess. But um, let's start off with the first one being um, um, cloud's cheaper. Um, it's not not necessarily. Um, you know, when you lift and shift, a lot of the times your applications were built for an on-premise environment, so there was no issue with uh, things like auto scaling. They didn't have to be um, developed with some of these cloud concepts in mind. Some of these um, um, more of consumption-based um, um, concepts in mind. So when you think about Auto scaling that wasn't something that was built into a lot of your legacy applications. So, and and a lot of the um, I don't want to mention any names of of products, but there's products out there that will help customers or help organizations move an application into the cloud. The majority of those products don't support auto scaling either. So what you've got is when you move your application into the cloud, you now have to be max provisioned at all times. Um, being max provisioned at all, at all times means a lot more money, um, which um, doesn't often translate into cost savings, uh, especially if you've already paid for a server, you've already paid for whatever environment you're, you're hosting that application in. Now you move it into the cloud, you're having to max provision at, at, at all times, you're not able to auto scale. So you're not really making use of a consumption based model, which is the main cost savings mechanism in the cloud and now customers are actually paying more than they were for the same capability on premise. You know, I have a great example that I was doing work in the Canadian government and this was at the early days of them using the cloud and they moved an SAP instance into the cloud and SAP instance that they ran 24 seven in their data center and they moved it into the cloud, same thing, max provisioned running 24 seven in the cloud and they blew through their budget, just blew through it, right? In like six months, the year budget completely blew through it. And, and they were complaining back to the cloud service provider, what in the world is going on here? And they quickly learned that, well, that instance did not need to be running 24 mm seven. -hmm. They only really needed it 16 five. And maybe even down to 14.5. I think they finally got it down to 14.5. So they actually turned it on and off every day. Yeah. It, which it sounds silly, <laughs> but but it saved them gobs of money. Um, so you're right. It's a different mentality because the cost is consumption-based, which is a completely different model than what we're used to in, in our data center. It's sunk cost in our data center, right? Yeah, well, and you know, if you think about health and human services, which is typically the largest, um, I would say, IT budget within state government, 
um, if you just think about that, we can't turn off a lot of the access to these services, you know, um, applications for eligibility services, as a, for instance, right. can't turn them off at certain times a day. They have to be available all the time. But if you're able to auto scale, I mean, you could, you could bring that down to the smallest instance, uh, probably that, you know, a, a cloud service pr pr provider, a CSP offers, um, you know, in those off hours. So it's still running, it's still there, it's still available if somebody needs it, but you're hardly running through any money at all. Whereas if you're not able to auto scale, um, you're not coming down to that small instance. So now you're having to run at that large size, even in those hours where nobody's used, using it. So is, is that the main saver or is that the main thing that helps realize that cloud is cheaper is understanding the consumption model and, and changing the, your operations and or your application to fit that model better? Or are there other factors that are, in, that are contributing to your, your bill? So there's others, but that one's probably the easiest to, to talk through and it's, Gotcha. It's arguably the largest cost savings mechanism is that that auto scaling, um, the consumption based based model. Um, other things that you can consider that I, I would say you could put into that same bucket are uh, some of the cloud native services. So uh, each of the cloud pr providers, each of the CSP offers um, services that now in most organizations are being fulfilled by some third-party application, some, some OEM product. Um, now, if you move into the cloud, you'll typically get a cost savings for a similar type of cap capability. They typically, most of the CSPs offer um, some of those cap capabilities at a price that would be less than if you were to go to a third-party vendor, uh, an OEM, whatever you were doing run in, your own, in your on-premise environment. And a lot of times it'll be managed uh, or in some uh, at some level managed by by the CSP. So there's um, you know the potential there to take some work off of your workforce also. Um, so there's a lot of attractive pieces to doing that. Part of the problem there's a couple problems with that. One is again a lot of these uh, legacy applications they're not developed to be able to leverage some of the cloud native ap applications. So you won't be able to do every everything that, you know, you read a white paper maybe and says how great the CSP offering is, your application may not be able to uh, consume that. Um, the other issue there is um, lock-in. So if you use those services quite a bit, it's very easy to get locked in to that specific cloud. If you need to, for some reason, whether it's cost, whether it's licensing, you need to move your application now to another cloud environment. Um, let, you know, just say, and not trying to say one's better than the other by, by any means, but let's say you need to move from AWS to, to, to Azure. If you've used a whole bunch of AWS services, it could be very difficult for you to extricate your application, you know, break all the ties with those services, move to Azure. But the same is exactly true moving from Azure to AWS. So I'm not, I'm, I was just using the... Right. No, it's, it's that typical vendor lock-in yeah. thing that people worry about, right? And it's real in the cloud for sure. It's probably more so... Um, it's, it's more of a concern, I would say in the cloud than I've seen it be in the past because you can, um, leverage so many services across so many different areas, uh, uh, you know, of, of your stack. You know what it kind of reminds me of? It reminds me of the server wars in the nineties. 
and early 2000s. Do you remember that? You, you had to compile your code for Solaris or AIX or HPUX. And then Linux came along and rattled everyone's cages. And now we don't worry about stuff like that yeah. at all in the data center. So I'm wondering, do you, do you think we'll ever get to the point where the cloud service providers aren't relying on proprietary um, SaaS um, offerings that lock people in? Do you think the people will get frustrated enough where they move to, like what happened with Linux? I Linux was just earth earth shattering to all these big companies that mm -hmm. uh, had these proprietary operating systems. Yeah, um, I don't know that the CSPs will want to do that only because it. Well, yeah. It, if I'm locked into your environment, I'm going to keep paying you my consumption costs. So. It, there's, it, it's sort of, that's why they offer it at a lower cost is to get you locked in. Is to, is to get you locked yeah, in. Yeah. So that you're, you're then going to continue paying consumption costs to them and not move off to another cloud. So they almost sort of, um, I, I would guess. They're I, like I a drug dealer. Let's just books. say what it is. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> they probably, <laughs> they want to get you hooked. Of course they do. I mean, yeah, this is, this yeah. is a, a, a normal business yeah. model, right? I'm going to entice you with better services at a lower price to get you locked in so that you can consume additional services. Yep. Yeah. Right. But you still bring back the point that sometimes your legacy applications that maybe you can't afford to update, you can't afford to, uh, what's the right word? You, you, you can't afford to replace that may prevent you from actually moving to the cloud and, or using some of these services because of the cost. I, I would say good. I, I'm like, I would say don't move into the cloud unless you can do it the right way. And I think that's part of why, you know, we want to call it, that's part of why, you know, this is maybe called the myth of lift and shift. If you're, if you're not able to move into the cloud for whatever reason, if you're not able to do it the right way, um, take a good hard look in the mirror and say, why am I moving into the cloud? Why am I, you know, what is my reason for doing this? Maybe you have, um, you know, legislation that says that you have to move into the cloud or we have to be out of a data center. Okay. Well, that, 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 that's a good reason. That's a pretty big motivator right there. That's a great reason. But if it's just to say that you're in the cloud, um, you know, not a good reason, not, not a good reason. You're probably going to end up costing yourself more. You're probably going to end up frustrating, uh, both your superiors and your workers because the strategy hasn't been fully thought through. Let's talk about technical sure. debt. This is a good one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm seeing this in, in huge droves, right? Um, it's a big problem. Absolutely. And people think a lot of times that by moving into the cloud that they're going to uh, fix their technical debt or eliminate their some portion of their tech technical debt. Doing a lift and shift doesn't eliminate your technical debt in um, almost any case. <laughs> um, uh, doesn't it actually expose it more? hundred percent. That was going to be the next point. It can expose it more and accelerate it even. Oh, wait, explain it. I, I understand the expose because I'm now taking something that's been running for 30 years and moving it into a new environment. I am going to find exposure points, but what's, what's the acceleration part? I don't, well, I think it's kind of the same concept is, um, um, when you, I, I think we're kind of saying the uh, same thing, you know, by okay, you're, gotcha. you're exposing it, 
but I guess what I was, you know, the other, so by saying that it's accelerating it, it's, uh, you know, you've now, um, you have more technical debt to sort of worry about. So whether you look at that as more technical debt being exposed or whether it accelerated your technical debt, either way, you have more technical debt to kind of worry about in some of those cases. All right, let's walk through an example, because I think some of the people hear that word technical debt, I think they think they know what it is. But let's walk, let's walk through an example. What, what would be a good, a good, easy case to understand? So I can, I can look and see if I'm having the same issues. <laughs> so um, you move into, well, so first of all, technical debt is, uh, you know, often sort of the, I guess, colloquial kind of term for systems that are kind of falling behind what they should be. Uh, so when you're not making updates to your system, um, when those systems, I mean, when I came into the state of Maryland, as a, for instance, we had systems, uh, that were still running on green screens where the, you know, the, uh, the, um, VT1, yeah. VT100 terminals, yeah. huh? the operators were, <laughs> uh, you know, they would, they would hit, you know, whatever code five or something, and it would bring up a new screen. And like, there was no navigation that was happening there. Uh, it, for people who had been using that system for 10 years, it was super easy for, for, for them to navigate. For someone just coming into the system, I sat down a terminal one day, I couldn't figure out how to make anything work on this thing. Like, and then, and the, and the, and the book is this thick, you know, to, to learn all the commands and everything. So, um, not a super great user experience there and uh, a super steep learning curve there. So, um, that, but, but I, I want to stop you for yeah, a second yeah. there. But it's working. That's, well, it's working for those people who have been there ten years. Oh, gotcha. But but what's the da- what's the what's the danger in carrying technical debt like that? I mean, it works. Well, but I mean, what's the downside of it? I, well, so anytime I have to bring in somebody new in, it's a lot of training to get them brought up brought up to a speed. Uh, there's a lot of down, downsides. You know, one of the downsides that people don't often think about, especially when you're talking about in a government space, is employee re- retention. So, um, you know, um, millennials, uh, any of the newer generations, I guess, that are coming into the workforce, which is, you know, you want to have someone who is knowledgeable on the latest um, um, trends and developments. Uh, around casework, as a, as a for instance. So, if you're trying to attract those top caseworker talents out of school who are up on the the newest knowledge, they're not going to want to come in and learn a green screen. They're not going to want to come in and and deal with these legacy applications. So, we were seeing a high amount of turnover of of very qualified people coming in. After a couple of months, they're like, you know what? I've had enough of this. I'm washing my hands of this place. I'm out of here. That is fast. I never would have thought. I never would have thought of employee retention with technical debt. Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting correlation. Um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's cool. I mean, it was one of our biggest issues in in one of the agencies was uh, the amount of people who were turning over, and um, uh, we think it was directly attributable to some of the technical debt that we had in some of our systems. Um, you know, uh, when you have technical debt, also there's there's security issues. If I, uh, Thank you. if, if I have an old legacy application that hasn't been updated, I mean, I saw this firsthand more times than I, than I would like to, to think about, but, um, um, I may not be able to apply patches to that, to that system. There may be a fear that I'm going to break it. This is an outdated you know, operating system that it's, that it's running on. I may not be able to apply patches. 
Therefore, I've got security vulnerabilities that I just have to accept until we can get out of that technical debt cycle. As a CISO, that must have driven you crazy. It did. Now, when I say I had to to accept, we had a risk acceptance process where well, really the head of the agency that. actually had to accept them, but it was still uh, not a not a pleasant process for for. No, for I, I, I bet not. Now, did you did you see a lot of that in the OT space in operational technology, or was this in your IT environment as well? Oh, this was in the IT environment. I'm talking about. Oh, wow. yeah. No, I'm talking because I I can I've seen that a lot in the OT space. It's been doing that same job. That pump has been pumping water for mm -hmm. the last 30 years on a Windows 95 box. I'm not touching it. Never, ever, right? I'll just keep it connect, disconnected from the internet. That's kind of the mentality of the OT guys. But in the IT space, that's, I mean, that's a whole different beast. Oh, yeah. No, it, and it was a real thing. We had applications that were running outdated operating systems, couldn't apply patches to them because they would, it would break the system essentially. Um, so they just had to accept, the agency had to accept the risk that um, something real bad may happen here. What about cost um, to maintain these legacy, this technical debt? I, the first thing that comes to my mind is COBOL systems. How much do you have to pay a COBOL programmer to come and fix problems? Oh, yeah. And, I mean, we laugh about it, but there's a lot of COBOL out there still running. The IRS uses some, and I know a lot of other states are still using mainframes that run COBOL on them. Um, yeah, so COBOL in itself, I mean, there's some things COBOL is really good at. And so it's not necessarily a bad language on its own. The problem is two things. One is the lack of talent out there around COBOL still. So now you're having to pay exorbitant prices to get someone in who understands it. But another big problem that relates back to technical debt is a lot of these systems. So again, I'm going to talk in the health and human services space. Because that's an easy example for, 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 for me to give, but it happens across um, motor vehicle departments happens in other places. Also, there's rule changes that, that, that come down either from the state legislature, maybe from the feds, from CMS, and they, they make tweaks to your eligibility programs. Very, uh, a very common reaction to that is for someone to sort of, or for an agency, I guess, to kind of bolt on, I'll say a little bit extra code to account for these, these, these tweaks. Right. So they're not actually um, really going in and, and fixing the system. They're essentially kind of, you know, adding on something a little bit extra that will, that, 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 that will achieve the required results. Um, the problem with this is, and this relates back to the concept of technical debt, you end up with a ton of spaghetti code. And then, so now when you do want to update your, your, your systems, there's no way to recreate these systems essentially. So it becomes this very daunting task to the point where it makes people almost want to continue in the technical debt cycle because they're like, well, I can't just like, I can't break this up. You know, one, one of the uh, common concepts now and around cloud is uh, breaking up your system into modules, containerizing. Right. Yeah, I've heard. I've I've heard that. That's an approach. The way the spaghetti code is written now, I have no way typically of breaking these up into modules, breaking these up into microservices. So now it's I have to do all of it. I can't just pull out a little piece of it. So that makes people even more hesitant to move towards this modernization effort um, because they've been doing things wrong for all these years. Now it's like when something does break, when, when, when there, when there is the impetus for this change, it's, uh, it's even harder. 
So that, that tells me I need to tell my kids to learn COBOL. <laughs> they will have a job forever. Well, I think the other option there is we, I mean, one of the other options there, and this is what we had to largely do in Maryland, you just essentially scrap the old program. You yeah, but aren't aren't won't services go down for your constituents in that? You case? don't you don't scrap it until you have a new program built uh, to gotcha. replace it, right? But um, but basically, you have to rebuild. You have to go back, look at the rules, go go from scratch. Go, you look at the use cases, scratch, and go from scratch. Rebuild something new, and then you can scrap the old one. <clears throat> That's costly. That costs a lot of money. It does. There's some. Um, so like when we did our cloud migration in Maryland, one of the reasons we started with Health and Human Services is because there's a lot of federal funding dollars out there to help with these migrations. So what we were able to do, I mean, the program at Maryland ended up being um, about a $500 million program over the life of it. And it's not oh, done yet, goodness. but it was paid for probably about 70% or, or more, probably more than that, uh, 70 something percent by the federal government. So the state didn't have to put up nearly as much money for a lot of these activities. Um, when you're updating a Medicaid system, as a, for instance, uh, when you're developing a Medicaid system, moving a Medicaid system into the cloud, the federal government typically pays for 90% of all the costs. So the state's only responsible for 10%. So if a state is doing this, um, you know, if they're really thinking about costs and how to optimize their money, if you start in the health and human services space, you can get up to 90% of a lot of these activities paid for by the federal government. You can keep things like your, your uh, cloud formation templates, some of your Terraform. So, you know, the, the uh, templates for, for setting these things up, the governance structures, all those things are reusable across the entire enterprise later. So, well, yeah. You, you so you have reusability that you built in. You have reusability. Um, you've, you, you're paying for a fraction of what you would have to pay if say central IT or maybe department of motor vehicles or someone, I, I don't know what the match is on DMV, but um, if you start in another agency, you may have to pay significantly more out of your state funds than if you start on the health and human services side. On health and human. Yeah. This totally made, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because you also build up your, your muscle memory on how to do this sort of stuff, right? Which can be daunting. It sounds like. A lot of people think that by moving into the cloud, well, the cloud is secure. I can move into the cloud and that's going to make securing my applications easier. But that's not always the case either. Um, it's very important. So AWS and all the all the CSPs have some ver version of it. I'm most versed in AWS. So that's where I have some, 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 some of my certs. So it's easiest for me to talk about that in some cases. But they have what's called the shared responsibility model. Uh, yeah, they all have it. They all have the, the model, but they differ. This is one thing that got me tricky. Yep. They differ just a little bit in each one. So there's this weird overlap, right? Where you know things are secure, but then there's this gap. Yeah, well, I, you have to be real careful. And that was kind of the, the point I'm making is you have to be real careful of understanding in each CSP, exactly to your point, it's a little bit different. So you have to understand exactly what you're responsible for in each of the CSPs and exactly what they're responsible for. And it doesn't just change by CS CSP. It changes by which services you're consuming in that, C yeah, in, in that yeah. CSP. So it's very important that your security teams, it's, um, it's almost more complex in some cases to uh, figure out exactly what I'm responsible for make sure that I'm staying on top of that versus what they're responsible for. 
you know, it's almost like, like a racing matrix across the different CSPs and across the different products that you have. Um, but if you don't keep up on that, um, you could have vulnerabilities out there where CSP knows that they're not responsible for it, but your team may not. Um, so security in the cloud, uh, it, it's not necessary. There's a couple things you don't really have to worry about. You don't have to worry about things like hypervisors and stuff, 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 stuff like that. In or even physical security. Physical security, yeah. Um, but it doesn't necessarily make it easier. It's it's still complex. Uh, you still have to be on the stuff that you're responsible for, um, and it can be difficult to know what you're responsible for at times unless you're well well versed in um, cloud. Have, have have you ever taken the approach? Well, the security is ultimately your responsibility anyway. Have you ever run into the in the uh, in the case where you are stepping on the security measures of the cloud service provider? Are they ever in conflict? Have you have you run into that case? I I don't. I'm trying to think if I've run into that. I can't think of where I've run into that. I have run into the reverse of that though, where someone thought the CSP was responsible for something. It's like, no, you're responsible for, for, for that. If you give me enough time, I may be able to come up with an answer on that one. I, I just, I haven't heard of one either. I, so I, in my gut, I'm, I'm constantly thinking, well, ultimately I'm responsible anyway for, for security of my stuff. It's my stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. So maybe if I am a little overzealous and step on the cloud service providers a little bit, I think that might be okay because it's, it's better to be a little over cautious than have a, a gap. That, so that, I think, I don't know. I, this is, uh... well, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, and if you have, um, I, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit specious here in, 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 in the oh, reason okay. what I'm saying, but if you have unlimited funds, then that's a great approach. Oh yeah. <laughs> there you go. If if you have to make, Yeah, I I don't have unlimited funds. So. If you have to make trade-offs and you have to prioritize, and, then you know, there's even um um cases that I could point to. I don't want to maybe reference anything directly because I don't know if that would be politically proper, but um cases where if the risk of an incident was less costly than the risk of fixing that vulnerability just let that then you take that risk. Just let it live. You know what? That's a normal. That should be in your risk assessment plans that you do. That's part of a, a life of a CISO. So that tells me when you're moving to the cloud, it um, adds to your risk profile, mm-hmm. uh, most definitely, right? And you said it's more complex. I totally agree with you there. Um, and in fact, people said, "Oh, the cloud is easy." Not easier. Than just running because it's so much easier if I just run everything in my own little data center and I'm not connected to the internet, right? I mean, security's easy, my cost model's simple, but I can't grow. I can't grow. Um, I can't provide services to, you know, my constituents. I can't uh, satisfy mission needs. All those sorts of things. So we're living in this complex world. We have to understand that migration to the cloud is complex. Absolutely, and. Um... I mean, when we were first moving um, into the cloud, uh, both on the DOD side and in Mar- Maryland, um, I've got very specific examples where uh, the security team would say, no, you can't do that. You can't set the firewall rules to that. And it's like, well, you just don't understand the way that the way that these concepts work in, in the cloud. It's not the same. So um, it's complex and 
you know, there's a knowledge gap a lot of times when you're first starting off moving into the cloud also. So uh, that adds to some of the uh, pain points also around that complexity. So I think you just found a fifth, uh, a fifth <laughs> myth. It's, I, I, and it is, you need to skill up. Yeah. You can't, that's a great point. I mean, you need to learn about it, right? That's something that you, you can't just, I, I, I think, and I will blame software developers. I am a software developer. I caused this problem in inside Intel. I cause this problem too, a lot, right? Oh, I can just spin up instances in the cloud. I can do whatever I want. Oh, and oh, I need to download um, uh, things out of GitHub and, you know, out of all these other repositories where I'm just grabbing libraries to make things work. So I open up all the firewall rules because I'm too lazy to pick the right ports, right? So, yeah, so I'm skilled enough to spin up an instance, but that's not, that's not the same. I'm um, right. I'm I'm glad you didn't work in. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, believe me, believe me. I I've interviewed um, our cloud our cloud broker team, and they go, "Yeah, we know who you are, Darren. We <laughs> we know exactly who you are." And um, they did they did wonderful things by um, putting security underneath me without me knowing. Yeah, and that's a great in way, my own yeah. instances and. And there's so, so it's a different skill set. It's a different way of thinking of compute. And I think that's our number five is you have to change your mindset. You have to skill up um, on, because these are different ways of doing compute than we've done in the past. I, that's a great, you know, what you were talking about there. It's a great example of uh, how we need some different types of guardrails when you're moving into the cloud. There has to be, you know, somebody shouldn't be able to, from a, um, um, from an enterprise managed cloud environment, they should not be allowed to go out and pull from whatever library they want to. They should be limited to be able to pull from, from certain environments. John, you just scared every software developer. <laughs> no, if, if you need to have something, tell me and we'll approve it and we'll get it into the library. And then you can pull from, from, from that also. But you're slowing me down, John. You're slowing me down. But you got to have security too. So, oh, I know, I know. I, um... I totally, I totally agree with you there. But I can tell you from my perspective, I'm like, then forget it. I'll just write it. On, I'll just go outside of the corporate because that's where shadow IT came from. A hundred percent. That's why people do it. Right. People. That's why people do it. Yeah. Yeah. And... So we've got to figure out better ways to manage, uh, especially in today's world. Holy cow. Yeah. The ransomware attacks, the cyber attacks, the the sophistication of the attacks are, are outrageous. Yeah, I mean, we had bots crawling the web looking for any sort of data that could be Maryland type of data, um, looking for, and we found a development environment um, in another country with an unlocked S3 bucket that was um, some, oh, of, some of our code. Uh, there wasn't any of our sensitive information in there. It was open source code, but it was code that... Um, we had adapted a little bit, so it wasn't it wasn't as bad for us. Funny enough, though, there actually was another state's data um, in that bucket that they were using for test purposes. So some of our code base was was in there. It was open source, like I said, so it wasn't wasn't hugely concerning from our per perspective. But I had to call that other state CISO, who's since become a good friend of mine, and explain to him, hey. I think I found PII information of your citizens that they're running against our code base, like in order to validate. I, how did that conversation go? I got a 
colorful call on a Saturday morning as I was heading to breakfast. So this is the, John, this has been wonderful. Um, great, great information, things we need to think about. Um, so thank you so much for com- coming on the show. It's my pleasure. I enjoy talking with you and uh, looking forward to doing this again sometime soon. Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.org. Until next time, go out and do something wonderful.